Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Dear Pharisee by Pastor Sean Wood. Is Jesus more than enough? Great question. If you've got your Bibles this morning, I'd like to meet me at Romans chapter 9. We're going to wade our way through this chapter. If you're here this morning, pat yourself on the back because the reality is a lot of preachers in particular and a lot of churches actually, when they're working their way through Romans, you'll notice that they get to the end of Romans 8 and they jump to Romans chapter 12. Uh, They miss three of the most important chapters, I feel, in Romans. And the context that brings us to Romans chapter 9 is as we leave Romans chapter 8, by the way, Romans chapter 8 had nothing to do with Calvinism, had nothing to do with all of those things. It had everything to do with our security in Christ. And it ends with, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. And there's a, there's, there's a list of nine things that Paul wants us to know. It doesn't matter what it is. You, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. Amen. But there's a question mark. There's questions that are bubbling to the surface, particularly in Jerusalem, but also abroad. Many people are beginning to ask, well, okay, if Jesus is the Messiah, what about Israel? How come none of them have inherited the promises of God? Everybody's saying God's forgotten Israel. Many in Israel are saying, why should we adopt a new covenant? God abandoned us and completely wiped away the old covenant. Why should we even think about going to a new covenant? Paul wants them to know in the next three chapters that God didn't abandon anything. In fact, he fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the old covenant. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been swimming. If you, this is particularly the case in Tasmania. If you ever go to the beach in Tasmania and want to go swimming... Uh, there's always one clown that runs straight into the water, jumps into the cold water, and everybody else is kind of testing the water. It's a little bit cold. Uh, But after a couple of minutes, that guy that's jumped in gets up and says, hey, it's cold at first, but it's not all that bad. Well, Romans 9's like that. Romans 9, when you read it at face value, we're going to read verses today like, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. (whistles) Did God say that? Yes, he did. That's exactly what God said. What did God mean when he said that? And today, uh, I want you to know I'm not a Calvinist. For those that understand what that means, um, half the Calvinists aren't Calvinists either. Uh, And I'm not an Arminianist. And what that simply means is Calvinism, I'll paraphrase for you because we need to understand this terminology as we work our way through. Calvinists basically say that everything is theistically, or God, Ordained, And what that means is God controls absolutely everything. A a Calvinist would say every time you blink your eyes, God's got his fingers going like this. Sounds preposterous, but he's sovereign because the Bible absolutely teaches that. Joseph Arminius comes on the scene and argues with John Calvin and says, no, 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 it's all about man. Man saves themselves. Man finds God. It's all about the choices we make. And God's always playing catch up. Both of them are incorrect. So I want to set that aside and I want to set Calvinism aside because the Calvinists can't even decide what Calvinism is today. And I want to ask one big question. How does Romans 9 actually apply to us today? 
When we read Scripture, how does it apply when you walk out the door today? How does Romans 9 and some of the confronting verses we meet, and they they won't be as confronting by the time we work our way through them, by the way. Uh, How does that apply to me when I'm in the workplace on Monday? Well, I'm glad you asked all those questions. Uh, Romans 9 does uh, kind of uh, raise a few questions, but let's begin with the first five verses because it sets the scene. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So this hard-nosed Pharisee-come disciple of Christ does actually have a heart and emotion. So uh, pastors do have emotions as well. Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's Israel. That's the Pharisees. Verse 4, they are Israelites. Bear with me for a moment. To them belong the adoption. This is what Paul says. You know, to, to Israel, to the people of God, hold this for a moment, to them belong the adoption. To them belongs the intimacy with God. An intimate, not a servant. God adopted them as children, which is what he's done to us if, if you were here for Romans chapter 8. To them belong the adoption, but it goes better than this. To them belongs the glory. And now Paul's pointing back to the wilderness where the Shekinah glory of God guided Israel. It was his Shekinah glory. It was his manifest presence among his people guiding them through the wilderness. To them belong the adoption. To them belongs the very presence and glory of God. To them belong the covenants and the, and the giving of the law and the worship, the, the ability to approach God. Wow. And the promises. Verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul's now going to go on. He's going to highlight something that God's word hasn't failed and God's promises haven't failed. We're going to get there in a moment. And the reason is God's promises to Israel have been upheld. He just wants to clarify who Israel and who the people of God really are. For those, uh, let me try and help you set the scene here. Uh, For guys like myself, uh, remember when you were in school, the schoolyard can be a cruel place, right? Uh, When I was in school, I got to the point where I'd rather a fight than a feed half the time, which didn't fare me very well when I wanted to learn something. But uh, I can remember, um, remember when you had gym class and at the end of the gym class, uh, everybody, uh, the gym teacher would say, we're going to have a game of dodgeball now. And they kind of select two captains. He'd go, you and you come out here and pick your teams. How many people know that those people picked the cool kids first? And if you were athletic, if you, had, if you had some kind of merit, if you had some kind of athletic ability, you got picked first. But if you were the computer whiz and you could do algebra, you were last. And the problem with the Pharisees were, dear Pharisee, the problem with the Pharisees were they said, you know what, we're acceptable before God because of what we do. <laughs> We're acceptable before God. We wear all the right clothes. We uphold the law. We interpret the law. We go to temple more than you all. We've got these enormous phylacteries. And for those who don't know what a phylactery is, it was this enormous scroll that used to be on the front of their turbans. And this phylactery, the bigger the phylactery, the more spiritual you were because it was a record of how much scripture you had memorised. 
These Pharisees were so good they could recite the first five books of the Bible word for word without missing a beat. And the bigger your phylactery, the more spiritual you were, the more merit you had, the more God was going to pick you. God liked you more than everybody else because of the clothes you wore. Sounds very Catholic, I know. Let's bear with me for a moment. Because of the clothes you wore, because of the ceremonies that you engaged in, you never missed a feast. You always went to temple. Remember the parable that Jesus said to me and went up to temple one day and one said, dear God, thank you that I'm not like my brother over here. And the other one beat upon his chest and said, forgive, have mercy on me, O God. And Jesus said, which one do you think went home justified? Pharisees are in the church and they are alive and well today. And a Pharisee is somebody who says, I will reach God by my own merits. You see, the Pharisees, uh, to put it in the words of Paul, they had a form of godliness, but they were denying the power thereof. On the outside, they, it's very easy to come on a Sunday and put on your spiritual makeup. It's, it's very easy to think, you know what, I'll go to church week after week after week. I'll give lots of money. I serve in the local church, so therefore God will pick me. No. If you want to know who God's going to use the most, look around the room and find the least likely candidate. It's always the person God uses. Why? Because it exemplifies his glory. Today, we have, for want of a better term, we have what religious atheists. People who hold a form of godliness. They, they believe in God, but they deny the power thereof by the life that they live. Paul says a relationship with God is not based on the clothes you wear anymore or anything like that. In fact, Paul is now going to point to the fact it never was. They said, you know what? We're saved. We're going to heaven. God's going to bless us. Why? Because my mum and dad are part of Israel. Paul says, doesn't matter. Verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God failed. Here's what Paul wants them to know. God hasn't let Israel down. The promises of God have not become hollow. God has not forgotten Israel. The problem's not with God. The problem's with the response. I've got some enormously good news for Pharisees in this room today. And at some point in time, I'm willing to bet that most of us have had Pharisaical tendencies. Tendencies where we get to the point where we say, God, it's all good. Everything's going swimmingly in my life. Everything's okay. I don't need you today. God, it's okay. Church is going fine. We don't need you today. See how long that lasts. Paul says, this is enormously liberating. The reason that it's enormously liberating is, if you think you have to scrub up to be accepted by God, please, please stay awake. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel actually belong to Israel. Well, that's a big statement. Verse 7, and not all the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. It's not just because of your physical lineage. If your mum and dad uh, were Christians here this morning, and you think that entitles you to just romp on into a room, Billy Graham says God doesn't have... Any grandchildren? He only has children. You don't inherit the faith of your parents. 
which is a good thing for me. <clears throat> Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but now we're going to... Uh, Paul's going to use two examples. First one is Isaac. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, I'm just going to press the pause button for a moment and give you a little bit of context of what this means. Uh, for most of us would know that Abraham had two children. The first one was Ishmael. Uh, for those that know their history, we now basically have the Muslim race because of the Ishmaelites. Story for another day. But we have Ishmael and we have Isaac. Uh, Ishmael represents the child that was born by man's efforts. Remember Sarah? Sarah's like, well, nothing's happening down here, so I'm going to have to sort things out for myself. Here's my servant. Here's Ishmael. God blesses Ishmael. God blesses Hagar which is an important thing to note. But God says, I will form a relationship, not because of man's efforts, I will form a relationship with the promised child, Isaac. There's another example coming, by the way, in a moment, which is going to be really, really confronting. But for the moment, a relationship with God is about promise. It's about his supernatural power. Uh, here's one way to kind of ask yourself a question. If you're wondering, am I a Pharisee this morning, ask yourself this question. Uh, is your standing before God based on who you are? Or is your standing before God based on who he is? And what Paul wants Israel to know is, your relationship with God isn't based on who you are. It's based on who he is. It's about how glorious he is. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, <laughs> but it's the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now, that word promise means an undertaking to do or to give something. God has undertaken to do something for Israel or to give them. So the children of the promise. Uh, hold that for a moment as we move on. <clears throat> Verse 9, about, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah, Rebekah is the wife of Isaac, and Rebekah and Sarah had something enormously in common. Does anybody know what, what the commonality between Rebekah and Sarah was? Both of them were barren. Neither of them could have children on their own. Yeah, a blessing today, I know, but moving on. In these days, a woman's honour was found in childbearing. Question I have this morning, do you feel like Rebecca and Sarah? Do you feel barren? Do you feel like your relationship with God is dry? like sucking sand through a straw. Please wait. <clears throat> For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived, conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, <laughs> grab hold of that line, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. This is where it gets a little bit Calvinistic. 
Though they were not yet born, though they had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. What's going on here? We're beginning to meet two truths in Scripture that I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on, but I want to try and help you to understand a little bit. Two truths that the Bible teaches that appear as though they conflict, but they do not conflict. They are the truths of the absolute sovereignty of God. What that means is to be sovereign means that you do not answer to anybody outside of yourself. The United States would say that we are the sovereign state of the United States. And they say inside of our borders, we do what we want, when we want, why we want, how we want. No, you don't. There's one a little bit, a little bit higher than Donald Trump. But God says I'm sovereign. And what that means is I don't answer to anybody outside of myself. What that means is I have not stepped off my throne. What that means is God is in control. But scripture also teaches that man is absolutely responsible. And you will be held accountable for the life that you have lived before God. We need to grab hold of those two truths, particularly when we get to the next part of Romans 9. There's some questions coming up by the time we finish with Jacob and Esau. That's why I, and let me tell you, this was a journey of some five or six years for me. Because I grew up under Calvinistic teachings that just kind of didn't sit 100% with me. So the best way I could understand it is this. Remember when Shakespeare said that life is a stage... And we're all actors. Well, he was pretty close, I think. And uh, the best way I can understand is that we are all actors on the stage of life. And we have the responsibility to play our role, fulfil our purpose on stage. That goes as far as to say that nobody else has your part to play. You have a particular part to play on the stage. You are responsible for playing that part. But there is a script writer. And we don't write the script We can't change the script and your entrance onto the stage and your exit off the stage is all due to the power of one very much higher than us because he writes the script. If you were talking to Joseph right now, he'd say, hey, God writes the script. If you were talking to Peter and John, they'd say, he writes the script. We're responsible. There's a big word in this sentence that I want to go over again. It's called, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And I I don't want to water that word down. I want to tell you exactly what it means. That word election means to pull out or to select. So let me tell you how that applies to Jacob and Esau. What Paul wants us to know is before Jacob and Esau were born, before they had made any decisions, before they had said any words, before they could be held accountable or responsible for anything, God chose Jacob. God pulled him out. God selected Jacob. But many miss the purpose of why. How many people here can remember Lance Armstrong? He's kind of a distant memory now. I'm actually a fan of Lance Armstrong. I know, or yes, he, yes, he did everything that he was accused of. He's, he, he took a lot of drugs. He did a lot of doping. He, he, he lied, manipulated, controlled, all those sorts of things, yes. But you know what? Uh, uh, the shame was that he doped because I still think he was the best athlete on the bike. 
I absolutely think he was the best athlete on the day. And he has been accused of being a drug cheat, but I want to defend him for a moment. Because the definition of being a cheat is to take an unfair advantage over your opponent. <laughs> they were all doped up to the eyeballs, every single one of them. Guys like Pantani, who won the Tour de France and was Armstrong's greatest competitor for a very long time, died from heart failure because of all the drugs he was doped up on. All that aside for a moment, USADA, the authority against this, had a big problem. And the problem was, we want to get rid of this drug culture amongst the cyclists. Good luck with that, by the way. We want to get rid of this drug culture amongst the cyclists. So uh, they begin to formulate and investigate. They, they put in better protocols, but they still can't stop it. And everybody knew, or at least suspected, that Lance was doped up to the eyeballs. But what did they do with Lance? Do you know that everybody on his team, the US postal team, and everybody else that they convicted got a six-month ban from competing? Lance Armstrong got a lifetime ban from entering any sport at all at a competition level. What USADA did was they elected Lance Armstrong. What they did was they said, you know what? It's the old philosophy, shoot one and everyone else gets the message, right? What they did with Lance Armstrong was they pulled him out of all the drug cheats and they made an example out of him. They absolutely poured out the fullest wrath that they could on Lance Armstrong. And what did they do when they did that? They sent a message to the cycling world. And let me tell you what God did with Jacob. God elected Jacob. Not because of anything that he'd said, not because of any merit that was inside of Jacob. He should not have inherited the blessing and the covenant because he was the second born, not the first born. And God says, I'm going to select him and I'm going to pour out my love on him as a message for everybody else. The purpose of God in election is this, that he will pour out his love on you, pour out his glory through you as a message to everybody else. But for far too long, far too many people have read this to be that God's this big puppet master that pulls some strings but deliberately neglects others. That's not the picture that this paints at all. Because as Paul finishes this sentence, he says, God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, not because of the general human activity, but because of the one who calls. That call is the effective summons of God. I'll give you one guarantee. Every person in this room and every person who names the name of Jesus Christ will glorify him on that day for their salvation. Because you didn't have the power to save yourself. That's the message of the gospel. When you hated God, he loved you. When you pushed God away, he reached out to you. When you thought it was just a random selection of natural events that brought you to church that day, God was steering the whole time. Uh, to understand God, you have to remove the word coincidence. God doesn't do things by coincidence. Let's bring this to a close now as we finish off what Paul's got to say here. Not because of works, not because of your merit, dear Pharisee, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. Now, 
As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Wow. (laughs) And all the Calvinists will stand up and go, see, I told you so. Let's hold the bus for a moment, shall we? Let's understand this word hate. Uh, The word hate that's used here is a Hebrew idiom. Not a Hebrew idiot, a Hebrew idiom. And Jesus actually gave us the interpretation. Jesus actually gave us the best way to understand this verse. Jesus said it like this. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must hate his mother and his father, his brothers and his sisters. In fact, he must hate his very own life. Oh, well, there's a contradiction, Jesus. Because in the Ten Commandments, we're told to honour our father and mother. And now you're telling us to hate them? What's going on here? The language, Jesus isn't talking about the rejection part. Jesus isn't talking about the hate part. Uh, The idiom is it switches the other side. And what Jesus wants us to know is, if you're going to follow me, you must prefer me over everybody else. You must prefer me over everything else. In fact, you must prefer me over even your own life if you're going to follow me. And some commentators, mostly the Calvinistic ones, have taken this to me, well, to try and dampen down what's happening here. They've said, well, you know, the reference here is to the nation of Edom and the nation of Israel. No, that's not, because you can't remove the individual directives that are aimed at Jacob and Esau. What do you do about the individuals? We talk about conception and birth. This is, this is language talking about two individuals. You can't remove the fact that God chose Jacob. And so others have said, well, it's not the word hate. It's more that God rejected. Well, it's actually neither. The truth of this verse is, God says, I prefer Jacob. Why? Because he comes to me with nothing inside of himself. There's no merit inside of Jacob. Jacob doesn't deserve my blessing. How many people here deserve to be saved? That's right. How many people here deserve it? No, it's all about God's Grace. You see, religion hardens people's hearts. Grace melts people's hearts. A lady came to Charles Spurgeon one day and says, Mr. Spurgeon, I have a problem with that verse. And he says, what's your problem, dear? She says, I can't understand how God could reject and hate Esau. By the way, God blessed Esau. And by the way, there's no directive here whether Esau spent eternity anywhere. You won't find it anywhere in Scripture. But you will find this verse in Malachi when God says to the Israelites, I have loved you, and he rhetorically answers, how have I loved you? I chose Jacob. I chose to love you when you were unlovable and there was nothing inside of you. Spurgeon says, excuse me, lady, but that's not my trouble. My trouble is not how God could hate Esau. My trouble is how could God love Jacob? When I look at a verse like that, I don't. My trouble isn't whether God rejects or whether He doesn't. My trouble is God. How could You possibly love me? Unless God intervenes in our lives. We're all destined to spend eternity in the one particular place. 
But by his grace, by his love, and by the fact that he chooses to, he sets his love and affection on each and every one of us. Some reject it, you know. You might be sitting here this morning and going, how am I supposed to respond to that? What am I supposed to do if, if my religion feels dry? If it feels like sucking sands through a straw, or I'm caught up in trying to build my own merit before God. What am I supposed to do, Pastor? I'm glad you asked all those questions. The best way I can describe it is from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody read the Chronicles of Narnia? When I was in school, uh, just as an FYI, they were the only books I finished reading. And I wasn't a Christian then, but I just found something in them that was fascinating. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, you will know that they are deeply, profoundly, symbolically speaking of the wonderful story of the gospel. But for those that have read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a really beautiful scene in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader uh, where Eustace, who is a grubby, snotty little kid, really kind of a grubby kind of a kid for those who know, He's approached, this is important, he's approached by Aslan. Now, Aslan's a figure of Christ. He's the lion, he's a figure of Christ. He's approached by Aslan. Aslan takes him to a well. And he says, before you get in, Eustace, you've got to undress. I'm paraphrasing now, just quickly. He says, you've got to undress. Eustace knows what that means. He's got to take off his dragon skin because this grubby little boy has been turned into a dragon. Aslan wants to help him, but he says, you've got to undress before you can get into the well. And for those that have read and know the scene that I'm talking about, you will know that Eustace tries. He takes off layer after layer after layer. But every time he takes off a layer of skin, he finds a more hard and more callous layer underneath. In all of his efforts, he doesn't get anywhere. And Aslan finally gets hold of Eustace. And the first cut is deep and it hurts. But Aslan takes off the layer and throws him into the well. And Eustace becomes a boy again. And all the Calvinists will stand up and go, see, Aslan was the only one that was active. He's the one that approached Eustace. He's the one that took his skin off. He's the one that threw him into the world. Yeah. But the one thing that Eustace did that changed and transformed him was he submitted and he surrendered to Aslan. It wasn't until Eustace stopped trying to take his own layers off. It wasn't until he gave up his religious practices and came and submitted himself and surrendered himself to Aslan. That Aslan took his this hard dragon skin off, threw him into the well, and he was a boy again. You might be sitting here today and going, you know what? I started out well, Pastor, but I feel like I've drifted. I feel like I'm, God wouldn't want me anyway. I started off well, but if I'm honest, God's become boring, Pastor. Don't put your hands up if that's you this morning. I just feel like I'm going through the motions. The one thing you can do today is what Eustace did. And surrender and submit yourself to the one who loves you just because of who you are. You don't have to scrub yourself up. For, if, we had to, if we had to clean ourselves up for Jesus to want us, none of us would be wanted. If salvation meant you had to scrub yourself up, if, if the gospel message was you stop this, 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 this and this and then you come, <laughs> no. 
Let's have a look at the record of the, of the Scripture, shall we? Let's see if we can find anybody of note in Scripture that had merit inside of themselves. Abraham, moon worshipper, Noah. We don't know much of Noah's history, but we know this. He found favour, grace, in the eyes of God. Moses was a stutterer. David was an adulterous murderer, but would lead Israel. Let's get out of the Old Testament for a moment. Let's take a walk in the New Testament. When Jesus comes, first of all, he was born in a stable, not in the temple. Second of all, it says that he prayed all night and then decided he was going to choose his disciples. He doesn't go to the temple. No Pharisees. No Sadducees. He goes and picks a couple of rough fishermen off the shoreline. Galileans were known for their cussing. That's right, if you're a fisherman here today. God's going to choose you first. Calvinists are going to crucify me for that almost. Okay. But, but just take a journey through 12 men. I'm going to say 12 because uh, it's a message for another day, but God's glory is seen in Judas just as much as it is. Do you know that right from the outset, Jesus knows what Judas is going to do and he chooses to love him anyway? Jesus says in John chapter 6, uh, did I not choose you, the 12? That word choose is elect. Did I, not, did I not select you guys? And yet one of you is a devil that will betray me. That's what he says. And so... From 12 men become 11 men. God overturns the known world through 11 men. Paul writes to the Colossians. One of the last letters he writes is to the Colossians. And he says, the gospel has now reached the whole world. Or in the Greek, the known world, which was Asia Minor. They turned the world upside down because he set his love and affection. And have a look at the glory of God that he would choose Forget the fact, forget the conversations, why didn't he go to the temple? Why would he choose these fishermen? For the same reason that he chooses you, he loves you. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.